Welcome, listeners, to another week of The Learning Curve. This is Kara Kandel here, as always, with the amazing Gerard Robinson. Gerard, how are you doing this week? Doing well. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I mean, in some sense, it was a somber weekend. I was thinking about how sort of prescient it was. We just recently had Barry Weiss on the show talking about the rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S., and then we have this Mm -hmm. hostage-taking at a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas this weekend. Disturbing that it seems like events like this are happening more and more often in recent years. So a little bit of a time of reflection that coupled with the fact that, of course, yesterday we celebrated Dr. King's birthday. And we had a guest on last week to talk about Dr. King and his legacy. So on the whole, a restful weekend, but a little bit of unrest in my soul, Gerard, thinking about some of this stuff. So I, but I hope you're well, and I hope that our listeners are well. And it also just made me think that I think the content we bring to folks every week is super relevant, as unfortunate as that might be time to time. What are you thinking? Well, Dr. Carson was on last week, and we know he's a professor emeritus now at Stanford, and he's in charge of the uh, MLK papers. In fact, they just brought on a new scholar to take the project to the next level. But so much of what he discussed in terms of King and his international influence is really important because yesterday I was sharing with the girls a little known fact about MLK is the fact that he was born Michael King. His father ended up changing his name to Martin Luther King, of course, after he traveled to Germany in 1934 as part of a delegation from the United States Baptist Convention to Berlin. And again, this is 1934. We know the year before that, Hitler comes to power. He said he was there. His dad was there at the time, starting to see the rise of Nazism. The Baptist delegation actually put out a statement saying that they were against all forms of racism, anti-Semitism. 1934. And so we're talking about this and what happened, unfortunately, in Texas in 2022. And so it just put into an international context that him going to Germany, the home of Martin Luther, and coming back and saying, wow, I'm so moved. I'm going to change my son's name to Martin Luther King, and the rest is history. On the anti-Semitism side, we've also had Jay Green on our show, and he's recently published a really good piece from the Heritage Foundation, which looked at diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at universities. But in that report, he also talked about anti-Semitism and or the lack of a focus when we're talking about diversity or inclusion or equity, and we're talking about racism, anti-Semitism isn't getting a great deal of attention. But here in the Commonwealth this past weekend, we had the inauguration of Governor Yunkin, also Lieutenant Governor Sears, who's our first African-American woman elected statewide, and our Attorney General, who is the first Latino elected statewide. One of the executive orders and one of the executive directives that he signed had to deal with anti-Semitism. And he also quoted King in his inaugural address. So the things you brought up were part of the weekend that I lived here in Charlottesville. Yeah. Lots to think about. And, you know, I want to root us firmly back in Boston, because as you know, Gerard, Dr. King did his doctoral work here in Boston. And I used mm-hmm. to love used to live really close to Boston University campus, just blocks away. And, and there's this beautiful statue dedicated to his memory there. And if you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. It is right outside of our main library, the Boston University's main library, as well as the student center. It's a beautiful work of art. So he's got a history here. And relevant to my story of the week, which I asked our producers if I could just get a little Boston today because we had a story out in the Boston Globe this weekend, an opinion piece highlighting just the absolute failure in many ways, I'm just going to name it, (laughs) of the Boston public schools. And it got me thinking so much about how disappointed Dr. King would be to know that in a system where Massachusetts just so consistently ranks number one in the nation on so many measures, including NAEP, among other things. But we also consistently have some of the widest achievement gaps in the nation, something that is just way too often overlooked. And those gaps are just horrific in the Boston public school system. So this opinion piece out of the Boston Globe, written by Roger Lowenstein, talks about the need to consider receivership, a controversial word, a controversial term 
for the Boston Public Schools. And the timing on this is great because my friend with Pioneer Institute, I have a paper coming out soon on this very topic. Now I'm gonna take just a moment to set the context. And that is that Boston Public Schools have been consistently, persistently failing, mainly children of color, but the, the system is also you know, heavily weighted, it serves disproportionate numbers of children of color because one of the things that happens in Boston is that if you are, and this is just talking in demographic terms here, if you live in the city of Boston and you are white and or upper income, you are much more likely not to use its public schools. So what happens then is that folks are locked into a system where they have what we call intra-district choice, but most times families are choosing among just a bunch of low-performing schools, unless you can, as we've talked about on this show before, test into one of the only high-performing schools in the Boston Public Schools, which would be an exam school, an admissions-based school. Some of that's changing. They're, they're revamping admissions via exam this coming year, and there's some changes made post-pandemic. But it's still, these exam schools have historically been disproportionately populated with higher-income children and certainly with white children. And many times what families do is they use private education up until the point when kids are eligible to go to the exam schools in middle school. And so where does this leave the other Boston public schools and the families that are choosing amongst just many, many low-performing schools? Well, it doesn't leave them with much choice at all. And this opinion piece in the Boston Globe makes the case for the state to essentially take over BPS. Now, I'm going to do a little detour here and take our listeners back to the spring of 2020. And all we'll remember is the pandemic. But in fact, about a week, a week before schools across the country shuttered their doors, the commissioner of education, Jeff Riley, here in Massachusetts, had requested, had ordered actually a study, as we do here, we and in many states, reviews of districts, but an in-depth review of the Boston public schools, which is one thing that is necessary for receivership. And that report was released very damning report was released just the week before schools closed due to the pandemic. So it was sort of buried, probably not intentionally. I don't think people really realized the pandemic was coming. But to make a long story short, the report, Gerard, was damning, absolutely damning. And it unearthed not just pockets of underperformance, but just persistent failure on the part of the system to serve kids, persistent failure in terms of getting the right curricula into kids' classrooms, just a disjointed approach to education where schools had a lot of autonomy and there was just very little accountability. We like autonomy generally, but when it's coupled with accountability and persistently putting less skilled teachers in the classrooms where kids most need the high skilled teachers, not a lot of professional development for teachers. The list goes on and on and on. So one would have thought that once this report was issued, the case for receivership would have been made. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. And here we sit years later with renewed calls, especially as Governor Baker, who I think is an ed reform minded person, is has announced that he's not going to run anymore. So we're hearing renewed calls to put Boston Public Schools into receivership. It would require yet another review to confirm what we already know, and that is that the schools are wildly underperforming. And the really important thing here to note is that although receivership is controversial. Sometimes it's called turnaround. Here in Massachusetts, here in the Commonwealth, we do have a record of some success, some of the only success stories in the country. And probably the most well-known success story of turnaround from Massachusetts is that of Lawrence, Massachusetts, where our current commissioner was, in fact, the receiver. So here we have a gentleman who has a template for how to do it. Nobody's suggesting he copy and paste. But receivership is something that we're hearing renewed calls for should be on the table. I will preview the Pioneer Report for folks saying we come to the same conclusion. So the problem's going to be, will it happen or will it not? Because there are a lot of forces against it. It is not a popular idea. Sometimes the least popular ideas are, are the best ideas when it comes to serving kids. Because as this opinion piece in the Boston Globe noted, it would be hard to imagine a school system that more poorly serves, especially kids of color, than the Boston public schools. So this is one to watch, Gerard. I think we're going to be talking about it in the coming weeks and months, but one that I hope all of our listeners will look into. Controversial, but important. Wow. Controversial. And weren't we here before 1991? If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I mean, the I governor, I the 
about that receivership. And now you're talking about the BU Chelsea Public Schools partnership. Yes, very good memory. I'm like, wait a minute. There was a takeover of Chelsea, and there was also a takeover, I guess, really a law that abolished the elected school board in Boston. That's right. Uh, back in, in Chelsea. The 19- yes. Yes. No, yes, in Boston as well. So we have mayoral control, as many cities do. Yes. It's amazing. I mean, as you're talking to our listeners, just think about it. 1991, Governor Wells says, you know what? We're going to take over the school system and put it under what we call mayoral control. Now, let's put this in context. Boston had had an elected board since 1822, one of the first urban systems in the country of its type to be open, to be free, and to really try to push the ideas of a new republic trying to make sense of a changing economy. And I remember reading that back in the 90s because my graduate work at the time was on state mayoral takeovers of schools. But to think that that was 1991, Mayor Flynn supported it, city council supported it, a number of black leaders and community groups were opposed to it. But one of the reasons they took it over was because of what was then called academic bankruptcy. Todd Zebarth, who was then working for Education Commission of the States, last I talked to Todd, he was working with Nina at the yeah. National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Right. He really laid out why it, it happened. And things moved forward, and then there were more changes. But the fact that we can even mention the term receivership in 2022 for the millions and millions of dollars invested in the school system, which is in a city with the largest university reach in the country in terms of the number of colleges in the greater Boston area, almost 250,000 students there. You have some of the best minds there, and yet this is a challenge. But that $23,000 per pupil. $23,000 people in Boston public schools. And I'm proud to say well-paid teachers on average, more than $100,000 in teacher salary per teacher. So, I mean, this is a system that the adults are doing well. There's money going into the system. The outcomes are absolutely not there. Most kids in BPS still cannot read on grade level. So anyway, like I said, Gerard, thank you for your long memory. But it's unfortunately, it's the same old story here. And so hopefully these calls for reform will have results. Well, maybe my story will be helpful for if, in fact, the school system is in receivership and you bring in a trustee or whatever term you want to use, maybe he or she can think about this idea. And so my story is from U.S. News & World Report, is from Heidi Borst, and it's titled The Rise of High School Internships. So let's put it in perspective. In 2021, we had 15.1 million public high school students and 1.5 million private school students. And according to Heidi, we know that a lot of students in college participated in internships. I was an intern for three years at a corporation when I was at Howard University, a ton of my friends were. But she said, that's great for you, but let's try to get Gerard started in high school. And I think she's right. And so one person who also thinks she's right is Lori Kopp Weingarten. She is a certified educational planner and president of One Stop College Counseling in New Jersey. And she said, working and interacting with various employers and employees is really about bringing exposure of the basics of what a future career could look like in an industry. And she said, it's one thing just to say you should get a job, but it's really about learning the skills, both verbal, nonverbal, social, emotional learning skills, all the dynamics that you need in order to mature. Because when students find an internship opportunity, it often provides them an opportunity to mature. So that's what Lori's saying. Well, there's a guy named Kevin Davis. He's the founder and chair of First Workings, which is a nonprofit organization that pairs low-income students with paid internships. And he said that students who work for nonprofits or for-profit corporations are getting really good exposure before they get to college into the importance of creating a work-based culture. Because as you and I have talked about on the show, everyone's not going to go to college. It shouldn't be because they don't have the academic skill set to do so. It's because they do and decide to go directly into the workforce or become an entrepreneur. But creating high school internships, according to both Kevin and Lori, makes a lot of sense. In fact, Kevin said, quote, through the internship experience, 
high schoolers gain the confidence to succeed in their chosen path. We also know that students who are involved in this work are going to likely do better academically. So what about the higher education level, since that's what we know a lot about? According to a 2019 survey of internship programs sponsored by the National Association of Colleges and Employers, they found that 70% of the college students who were interns received a job offer. If we were back in 1991, when I graduated, I would be one of the people in the 70%. But that's at the college level. Not so great at the high school level. So according to a 2020 study by the American Student Assistance, it's a nonprofit that helps students obtain college degrees. It identified through its survey that only 2% of high school students had completed an internship. So if we're looking for examples, let's look at Washington, D.C., my former hometown. The Madeira School, which is outside of Washington, D.C., is a private high school for girls. They emphasize experimental learning, and they've had an internship program that's been a part of the school's curriculum for more than 50 years. Today, students at that school intern at community-based organizations as sophomores. They also intern on Capitol Hill as juniors and then into career-oriented positions as seniors. We can also look to the Midwest, although not your state, uh, a nearby state of Ohio. Trinity High School has an internship program that has placed students in internships at the Cleveland Museum of Art and the Cleveland Botanical Garden, along with healthcare and municipal services. So there's one professor who said, you know what? I can tell when a student who walks in my class has been involved in an internship. And this is from Joseph Nanini, Director of Clinical Experience and Assessment at the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Nevada, Reno. Here's what he says, quote, the most prepared a student is when they enter college, the easier time he or she will have when adjusting to the rigors of college level academics as well as social pressures. In higher education, we try to do everything we can to support students in their perseverance toward degree and completion. And so what he basically said is, I have an idea when students walk into my classroom who's been involved with an internship. So on my side of the fence, I am proud to say that when I was president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, we actually used some of our high school students in internships. Some were supported locally, some nationally, some paid, some volunteer, but the main goal was twofold. One, to give them an opportunity in high school to be involved with planning a conference, a planning uh, an agenda to go to Capitol Hill, or doing something in the community. Number two, for some, it was paid cash. For others, it was actually credit they can earn. So I'm a big believer in the idea of internships. I like this article because it's reminding me that I need to do more for those students in high school. What are your thoughts? I think it's huge. I mean, I would point simply to the Cristo Rey network of Catholic schools where students pay for their education because they only serve kids who can't afford the cost of private school education. So they pay for their education through internships. I've done research on these schools and it shows exactly what you're talking about. That is through internships, kids cultivate the life skills, the soft skills, so to speak, that they need for success. So I think you are right on. I couldn't agree with you more. I am shocked that nationally only 2% of kids participate in internships. And I'd also like to say that like, I would hope that in conjunction with thinking about internships, we can think about pathways to college and career, as well as making students and parents aware of internship opportunities, pathways, opportunities. I'd also like to really give a quick shout out. Now, this is more about apprenticeships, but the Tennessee Department of Education just became the first state to get approval from the Department of Labor to have high school students engage in apprenticeships to become teachers. So you can start learning as early as high school whether or not you want to pursue a teaching career. They will pay for a bachelor's degree. They will pay for current teaching assistance to do the same. So I think this is a great theme, and I hope we keep hitting on it, Gerard. Nice. We've got to get to our guest because we've got a fabulous guest today, Gerard, friend of yours, your colleague at AEI. We are going to be speaking with Ian Rowe. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focusing on education and upward mobility, family formation and adoption. So we're going to take a quick musical break and we'll be right back. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Learning Curve. As you know, every week we bring you an exciting guest, 
to talk about something in the field of education, public policy, entrepreneurship, where we're lucky today to have Ian Rowe, who actually has a footprint in those three areas and many others. Ian Rowe is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on education and upward mobility, family formation and adoption. Mr. Rowe is also the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of charter-based international baccalaureate high schools opening in the Bronx in 2022. He's also the chairman of the board of the Spence Chapman. It is a nonprofit adoption service organization, and he's the co-founder of the National Summer School Initiative. Ian is a former CEO of Public Prep, a tuition-free pre-K and single-sex elementary and middle public charter school network, educating more than 2,000 students in New York City. He currently serves as a senior visiting fellow at the Woodson Center and a writer for the 1776 Unite campaign. Ian earned an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was the first black editor-in-chief of the Harbus, which is Harvard University's School of Business newspaper. And he has a BS in computer science engineering from Cornell. Ian, welcome to The Learning Curve. Hello, Gerard. Gosh, I'm exhausted <laughs> just, just, listening. <laughs> just listening to all of that. Oh, my gosh, I better live up to the expectations that bio sets. But it's good to hear your voice. How are you? Doing well. Listeners may not know this, but Ian and I are both fellows at the American Enterprise Institute. And even though we're in the same shop with COVID and everything else, we haven't had a chance to see each other in person, walk in the halls of AEI. But you continue the good work. I read what you write. I've seen you on uh, television a couple of times and you do really good things. And in fact, as you were talking about your background, all the things you've done, this is just a great way to open up our, our conversation We've given people a brief overview of some of your accomplishments and your academic background. Would you share with our listeners a little bit more about your biography that I didn't cover? And what was your aha moment that made you become interested in K-12 education reform? Well, first of all, Gerard, great to speak with you. Thank you for having me on. And in terms of why I'm interested in K-12 education principally is because I myself am a great beneficiary of a great K-12 public education in New York City. My parents came to this country from Jamaica, West Indies via England. When we first came to the U.S., we lived in Brooklyn and enrolled in the public schools, and we ultimately moved to Queens. And then actually for high school, I went to Brooklyn Tech High School. I had a great great education. So I'm very aware of what it means to have access to a tuition-free K-12 education. You know, and then from there, from my K-12, I was able to then get into Cornell, which another great platform. I went to engineering school. I can't underscore enough, of course, the role my parents played in valuing education and providing a stable home. So my early days were, I would go to school, I would come home, I'd do my homework, we'd have dinner and I'd go to bed and I'd wake up, I'd go to school, come home, do my homework, go to bed. So they created a routine and a set of predictable experiences growing up for me and my brother. So it is the combination certainly of a strong, stable household with my parents who, you know, who stayed together for 48 years uh, before my dad passed away. And my dad always saw public education as the great equalizer, no matter where you come from, as long as the state provides a solid public education, or if you take education in your own hands, but one way or the other, that young people get inculcated into a system where they learn the knowledge, skills, habits to be successful. They understand the ways of being within a given society. So even, even as immigrants, as we came over from Jamaica, we have our own food and likes and ways of being. There is also an American culture to become part of and to be inculcated in. And that's important. As I've gone through my journey in life, I have now seen what it means to have access to a great education and also what it means to not have access to a great education. So when I graduated from Cornell, I went to work for what was then Arthur Anderson, became Anderson Consulting, which then became Accenture. 
you know, I was doing all sorts of strategic planning for these big consumer products firms and you know, did a few big projects. And But I wasn't really feeling that inspired, frankly. I started mentoring in public schools in New York City. And I just saw all these great kids who, by virtue of zip code or the family structure that they were born into, had a really hard time in school. And it just didn't seem fair that they either didn't have access to really great schools or because they were in challenging home environments, it just made it really tough for them to excel. So that just put me on a whole different journey. I, I decided to leave Anderson, you know, get off the partner track there. I was fortunate enough to get into Harvard Business School. And then I started this really weird journey. I met this young lady whose name is Wendy Kopp, who's the founder of Teach for America. So I started talking to her in the early days when they were recruiting outstanding people to teach in urban and rural public schools. I did the crazy thing. After business school, I went to work for Teach for America with Wendy. And then through various activities, I worked at the White House, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, even MTV. But all throughout all of these, there was an education component that I was connected to and ultimately wanted the opportunity to run my own network of schools. So I ran Public Prep, as you mentioned, which is a network of single-sex public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. So I ran that for 10 years. And amazing, again, we can talk more about it, but pre-K through eighth grade, more than 2,000 primarily low-income kids, primarily Black and Hispanic kids. And the whole idea was to build a sense of agency and self-sufficiency and ensure that they had a shot, that they had a real shot to compete. And now I'm launching a new network of, as you said, character-based international baccalaureate high schools in the Bronx because there just aren't enough great high schools in the city. And I like to be a think tanker and a doer and to demonstrate institutions that live up to the values of you know, equality of opportunity individual dignity, common humanity, because I think those are the kinds of things that young people should be exposed to. And there aren't enough institutions that stand for these things, especially in the current environment where there's a lot of woke ideology telling young people that they're either an oppressor or an oppressed based on their skin color. And we want young people to understand that they have the ability to achieve at the highest levels, but we need our institutions to be focused on rigorous curriculum, high expectations, and this whole idea of viewpoint diversity as well. So that's a long-winded story that I myself had a great K-12 education, and I want to make that opportunity available for other kids. I had no idea that you worked for MTV. We can talk offline about that. <laughs> We're yes. talking about shaping character and just doing some of the math. You were there at a point when it had a really big imprint upon yeah. like high school thought and what people were thinking about sociology, yeah. culture, and, and life. Yeah. Let's go back to your immigrant parents. You know, we think about Black people in the United States. We overlook the fact that according to research from Pew, that approximately 9% of the people we call Black, in fact, are immigrants. Yeah. And yeah. if you look at the immigrant families who are Black who come to the United States, a disproportionate number of them compared to African-Americans have gone on to major success. You're one example. We think of Vice President Kamala, her father from Jamaica. We think of Colin Powell, his parents from the island. And a lot of them actually end up in New York, other places as well, but a lot in New York. What about the immigrant story is a part of not only your narrative, but also the broader narrative about the whole idea of social agency, what is it about that immigrant dynamic that sometimes we overlook when we're having the black conversation in general? Yeah, you know, this is a tough conversation because sometimes people don't want to admit that if you actually look within the black community, and in particular, recent immigrants from the Caribbean, parts of African countries, Nigeria, Ghanaians, incredibly high levels of success. And yet, if you listen to the dominant narrative as it relates to the black community, if you, you, know, you listen to a Nicole Hannah-Jones of New York Times 1619 Project, she wrote an 8,000-word essay basically saying, if you're black, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you buy a home. doesn't matter if you save. doesn't matter if you get educated. doesn't matter, uh, essentially, none of that, none of those activities, quote, 
make up for 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote, period. And it just leaves you with this idea that, gosh, if you're black, I mean, you're going to get shot on the street or you have no shot. You know, the, the, and, her, and her whole reason for saying these things was that was her rationale for, a, I think, a $14 trillion reparations program, because if you're black, you just don't have the agency to move forward. And yet, if you look at certain communities, and by the way, not only immigrant black communities, but African-American families who've been here who do the things that, by the way, Nicole Hannah-Jones has done in her own life. So <laughs> Nicole Hannah-Jones has gotten married, gotten educated, bought a home, done those things, you know, because her accountant would be very surprised to hear her say those things. And so what it indicates is that perhaps there are factors that transcend race that really are the driving factors behind economic and other forms of prosperity. And it's just the case that, and this is now back to some data, which I often cite, it's often referred to as the success sequence. But if a kid has the opportunity to get a good, good basic education, even just a high school degree, then a full-time job of any kind, just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if they have children, and they had been married first, 97% of the time amongst millennials, you avoid poverty. And that just so happens to be the kind of behaviors that most immigrants, certainly recent immigrants, practice. You know, there's a huge value placed on education and educational choice, huge value placed on family, and huge value placed on staying together and reinvesting across generation. And so that's the story in Jamaica. Like when my parents came here, it was not only my parents, but you know their brothers and sisters. And we all got together every Sunday night. And it was a cocoon of safety and education and love. And by the way, expectations, like expectations and not just expectations to get by, but expectations to be an engineer, to be a lawyer, to be a doctor, like to succeed, but succeed superbly. So sometimes we have this conversation, some people resent like, oh, you're saying that black Americans who are in this country are lazy. No, it's just recognizing that if there's a white supremacist on every corner that's oppressing every black person, well, for some reason, there are certain black people that like, oh, oh, I see you're from Nigeria, then you're good. You know, you know what I mean? Like that there actually must be some other factors that are driving success. And you start to see that these are the habits, these are the decisions, these are the behaviors that right now seem to be more entrenched in communities that come into the United States who have an immigrant ethos, who come to this country with more of the, I'm going to make sure I take advantage of the opportunities. And so if we're able to divorce those behaviors and attitudes from skin color and say that you're not inherently oppressed because of skin color, that if you adopt these certain behaviors, then you can be successful too. To me, it's liberating. Final point is that when we think about empowering and liberating messages for young people, especially young black kids, it's important that they know that simply because they've been born in the hood or wherever, that they're not inherently oppressed or inherently powerless or inherently dependent upon the government in order to solve their problem, as Nicole Hannah-Jones likes to articulate, that they're people that look just like them, people who may have come from another country recently or people who have been in, in the country for generations. But for both sets of people, agency is within their grasp. Self-sufficiency is within their grasp. And it's not a mystery that their actual behaviors, their actual decisions around family formation, getting your education, full-time work, all those things in a particular order can lead you on a pathway. And by the way, let's not forget having a faith commitment too, because we don't often talk about the power of religion, but that these things are within your grasp to be successful, regardless of skin color. As I hear you talk, and I know you're from New York, I also think about another person with an immigrant background, Shirley Chisholm, 
who ran for president in yeah. the early 1970s, wrote a book, Unbought and Unbossed. And she's saying, some, she said then some of the same things you're saying now. So I also think there's something in the water in New York. You New Yorkers seem to, <laughs> to do these kind of things. And speaking of immigrants who've done well, I also want to give congratulations to Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears oh, yes. uh, here in Virginia. Yes. I had yes. a chance to go to her inaugural event earlier this week. And that's another example of someone with Jamaican roots who is now changing the tide here in Virginia. I was waiting to hear the announcement that you were going to be the Secretary of Education in Virginia. Oh, no. I was so excited to hear the announcement about Amy Gudera. Uh, Yo, no, I know, I know Amy. I know Amy. No great <laughs> stuff. But when Youngkin and Sears won, I thought, oh, my God, they're going to be populating their candidate. Who are some amazing people who are already in Virginia? Who? Uh, so I thought of you, but it's all good. It's all good. No, I appreciate the kind thought. You're talking about New York, and you've got an imprint in, in a few of the boroughs, and you made a really good point about IB. Talk to our listeners about why International Baccalaureate, and also talk about why character? Because we hear the word, we just celebrated King's holiday, and I think about an article that King wrote, get this, at age 18, he wrote an article called The Purpose of Education, and it appeared in the January, February 1947 edition of the Maroon Tiger. And in it, he said, quote, we must remember that intelligence is not enough. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of a true education. So why a network of character schools and why IB? Yeah, it's such an essential question. I've just written a book called Agency. And the, the whole thrust of the book is to empower the rising generation to overcome the victimhood narrative and to determine how to create their own pathway to power. I've put a lot of thought into this word called agency, which I define as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. Think of velocity, you know, it's a vector. Think of velocity. Velocity isn't just speed, but it's speed and direction, right? So we as human beings, we have free will. We have the ability to make decisions. We've got the, the ability to move our life in one direction or the other. The question is, where does that direction come from? Where do you get a sense of what the likely rewards or consequences are of decisions that you make? And so for me, that's where the power of mediating institutions come from. Because first and foremost, there's your family. So that's the first place. And in fact, I've even created a framework called Free. Family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. Those are the pillars that if a young person really thinks about their life, those are the character-forming institutions, the character-shaping institutions that help young people understand how do I navigate this force of free will that I have. And so that's why I'm launching a network of character-based international baccalaureate schools. You know, this new network, uh, Vertex Partnership Academies, be anchored in the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, wisdom, temperance. Those are the virtues that are, every other virtue is derivative of those four. Because again, I think young people need a grounding in what does it mean to have courage? What does it mean to stand in the face of fear, to understand the risks, and yet to have the power to do something to still move forward? in that moment where you're the most scared, you're the most terrified. But like, for example, having a great family is a place where you know you always have a safe place to come back to. I remember when my parents shared stories about coming. First, they moved to England. My mom uh, moved to, my dad wrote for her hand in marriage for her to travel from Jamaica to England. This is in the you know mid-1950s. So they could be together and get married. And she got a ton of support for her family and that we will always be here for you. And and so you start to realize, God, there that these institutions, they have my back. Right? So and that's where a faith commitment also is really important, that there are a set of morals and structures that help you make decisions. So why a character-based school is that, first of all, what's interesting is every school is a character-based school, right? The question is, are you explicit about what you're teaching or not? If you're a school that doesn't have expectations, for example, around timeliness 
or high expectations or being diligent about doing your homework every night or building study habits, then you're actually a character-based school too, but you're actually building the wrong character-based traits. So it's really just owning the fact that kids are in our school building for a significant portion of their life. And hopefully us working alongside with parents help to build those character-based strengths that young people will need throughout their lives to make good decisions. And so agency is this building's idea, the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. And that moral discernment has to come from somewhere, that the ability to discern decisions from a moral perspective has to come from somewhere. And I put forth that family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, if you embrace those four pillars, that you'll have a much greater likelihood of leading a life of freedom, the life that you choose, the life that you want. And that's what I want for our young people in our schools. I've already pre-ordered a copy of your book, at least on Amazon, it says it's scheduled to come out in March. I think it's more going to be April just because of supply chain issues. But <laughs> Ah, that is true. Well, listeners, you can go to Amazon or you can go to, is Templeton Press your publisher? Yes, 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 yes. 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 And they are, the Templeton Foundation and the Kern Family Foundation are two of the major funders of character education across the country. They fund the organization where I work as well, so I want to give them a shout out. Someone who you work with is someone I know well, and Bob Woodson, he's been on our show. I first met Bob in September of 1987 when I was a freshman at Howard, and he spoke about race and about getting young black men in Detroit to marry women that they had impregnated. And I walked up to him afterwards, shook his hand, and no idea that years later our paths would cross different ways including his granddaughter who went to the University of Richmond School of Law and my wife at the time, or my wife at the time, she worked at University of Richmond Law School, was her mentor. Bob and I have been in conversation and I know you're working with him with 1776 Unites. Talk to us about your work there and how you guys are influencing conversations about America's founding documents, about Supreme yeah. Court cases, slavery, those good things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such such a great question. So you met Bob Woodson back in 1987 I honestly had never heard of him or his work until I think it was about February of 2020. Just to give you a sense, I mean, here's this incredible icon to think about the work that he has done in the United States of America as a man, period, and as a black man in particular. And for someone like me who's worked in education at MTV, at the Gates Foundation, I have never really known his work gives you a sense, diminishes the work of someone like a Bob Woodson, and yet elevates the work of Al Sharpton or Ta-Nehisi Coates or Nicole Hannah-Jones. Like this, These are the people who are viewed by the larger society of those who speak for the Black community. So even that is a testament. So I got to know Bob because he had Again, after 40 years of running the Woodson Center, uplifting people from in thousands of communities across the country to become agents of their own uplift, he saw that the New York Times had just published the 1619 Project, which was many of your viewers are probably familiar with, was initially just a magazine issue, was a series of essays that had a pretty robust and provocative view of American history. And in fact, we clearly intended to, quote unquote, reimagine history and say that maybe the country's founding was not 1776. And in fact, it was 1619. And maybe this country is not all that. You know, maybe the founding ideals were, quote unquote, false when they were written, that the America was, was founded as a slaveocracy and not a democracy, and that the country has anti-black racism running in its very DNA. I mean, you think about it, in your DNA, that means it's a permanent malignancy. And Bob said, wait a minute, you don't speak for all black people and we have to stand up. This country doesn't just run on autopilot. 
and that it will be threatened. I mean, a democracy requires an informed electorate to continue to move it forward and uphold its principles. So he got together a group of people, myself, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, Coleman Hughes. I mean, just an amazing group of, quote unquote, elders as well as newbies who were all just trying to create greater opportunity for not just black kids, but all kids across the country to understand that we do live in a country that has an incredibly, in some ways, flawed history, and yet incredible stories of resiliency and progress. And the whole idea of slavery, the fact that it existed in the United States, yes, but it existed all over the world. And the United States was one of the pioneers for how slavery was not only overturned, but the people who had been once oppressed have thrived and can continue to thrive if we unlock the secrets that at least some of our community has had access to. And so I joined Bob and the 1776 Unites and team. And when we also heard that the 1619 Project partnered with the Pulitzer Center to actually create a curriculum and we were like, whoa, man, like they, they don't just want a magazine issue. They want to indoctrinate kids into this view of America as this permanently oppressed society that if you're black, I mean, you are screwed, according to Nicole Hannah-Jones and her team and her ilk. And so, you know, maybe there's another idea. Maybe there's an alternative point of view. And it wasn't to demonize or to cancel, but to stand strong and say, we disagree. We disagree. And here's our proof. Here's our evidence. Here's people throughout American history who have fought against this idea of America being a country with a permanent malignancy. And so we said, you know what, if she's going to create a curriculum, let's create one not just in response, but to highlight the incredible stories of the African-American experience in the United States, warts and all, not just cherry picking. So if you're going to tell the story, for example, about the Tulsa massacre, then tell the whole story. Tell the stories of black wealth and entrepreneurship that created, that led up to the Tulsa massacre, and then tell the story of what happened afterwards, the recovery, the resilience. Tell the whole story so that people can see that, yes, I mean, America has parts of it as a wretched past, unfortunately, like many other countries in the world. And yet there seems to be this through line where the very values and principles that the country was founded upon were the values and principles that informed laws like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and everything else that has created the opportunity that, yes, exists today for low-income Americans, Black Americans, for people, billions of people around the world that still yearn to come to this country. So Bob and I and the team, that curriculum that we created has now been downloaded more than 25,000 times by teachers in all 50 states. It's been downloaded in public schools, private schools, charter schools, home schools, after schools, prison ministries, anywhere where character formation is happening for kids. And we're very proud of that because, you know, again, we're not looking to call people bad names or cancel, but to show that there is an empowering alternative. And if we want to look at American history, bring it on. This country has a lot to be proud of. There are parts of the country, like many others, unfortunately, that it's a very negative past. Learn from it. Be honest. But tell the whole story. Don't sanitize American history so that you cleanse it of all the bad things, nor cherry pick so you only focus on the most egregious, atrocious events, as I think most of the 1619 Project does. And so that's what we're trying to do, to show that there is a compelling alternative. And, and the nice thing is, I think many people are responding to say, we appreciate it, that you're not running away from America's past or our experience with slavery or Jim Crow or even present day racism. But the key is recognizing that what once may have been literally structural racism enshrined into law is now surmountable racism um, by people who, again, based on some of the things we talked about before, are thriving in our country. And 1776 Unite stands to make that story known to millions of black and other kids across the country. No, that's a powerful story on so many fronts. As we get ready to close, what are two things you think 
for example, we are, we're going to have over 30 gubernatorial elections uh, this year. What are two things that sitting governors or people who are seeking to unseat a governor or if a seat's going to be open because of term limits, what are a couple of ideas that those candidates should be thinking about for their campaign, not just for education, but the whole part of just understanding human development? Yeah, well, I think they should look to your state of Virginia (laughs) and look at what Governor Youngkin made a point of during his campaign, and it was pretty straightforward. Parents have a voice. Families matter. Education matters. Choice, educational choice matters. And parents should have a say in the development of their kids. Sometimes we make things a lot more complex than they need to be. And I thought in his campaign, things were pretty simple. I think over the last few years, you know, since the tragic murder of George Floyd, which was a heinous event, and yet the reaction to it unleashed a woke ideology that, again, paints the country as this permanently racist. All of our institutions are infiltrated with racists. And yet there are a number of people who are tiring of that ideology, which seems to just place people in boxes regardless and says that the only factors that matter are your skin color or your gender. And based on that, you're either going to be oppressed or you're an oppressor, full stop. And ignoring the more developmental aspects of what makes a human being a human being, your family, the family that raises you, the religious or faith commitment that you're part of, the quality of education that you have in school choice, and then ultimately, so idea of entrepreneurship, your ability to generate wealth in all of its forms, social wealth, financial wealth, free, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. If I were someone running for governor or running for political office, those would be the things I would run on. You know, I would be trying to revitalize the institutions that make us all free family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. That's what we need to come together on as a country, across race, across class, across gender. That's what I would run on because that's the future of our country. Well, Ian, thank you for the work that you do both at a think tank and your role as an entrepreneur who's creating do tanks known as schools. Our listeners are here to support you. Let us know what we can do in the future. Look forward to seeing you soon. Gerard, thank you so much. It was a very inspiring conversation. Take care. Gerard, we are going to close it out, as always, with the Tweet of the Week. This one from John Bailey, so at John underscore Bailey. The $1 billion budget for the Tech Modernization Fund, known to those who know about it as the TMF, is a huge investment, but funds are only part of the solution. Tech Talent Project outlines tech fund best practices. So the Tech Modernization Fund, this is tons of money, tech infrastructure, but we need an outline for how to get it done because as he points out, money is not enough. I encourage everybody to look up John Bailey on Twitter. This will take you to a nice link that has a great policy brief with the best practices and steps that folks need to take in order to make the best use, as John says, to make government work for people. What do you think about that? That's something, huh, Gerard? Next week, Gerard, you know it, it's National School Choice Week. So we're going to be back with our friend Andrew Campanella, and I hope you bring your yellow scarf. I will. I bet you I bet you got a lot of them at this point. <laughs> I've got two. I just got to find okay. them in boxes I have not unpacked I know, in two I've, years. I've got a few. They're hanging out somewhere with purses that I only use once a year. So, Gerard, until next week, you take care of yourself. You stay warm. And I hope we can open the show next week with some cheerful news. You're here. here.